our text this morning uh, from the Sermon on the Mount <clears throat> with some supplements. From the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 is short and difficult. Neil Fix said to me after the 9 o'clock service, he said, In all my years, I have never heard a preacher take that text on. You're about to find out why. <laughs> um, this whole question, this whole question of marriage and divorce is fraught. Uh, it can be theologically complex. You have whole traditions disagreeing on exactly what is taught in Scripture. And besides that, it's emotionally difficult territory. Few people rush into this gladly, right? It's emotionally difficult territory. Many have experienced the pain of divorce or the trauma of infidelity or just the sheer difficulty of making the mystery of marriage work. Not to mention the fact that the complexities and the tangles of real-world marriages are constantly presenting us with situations where it's not clear exactly how Scripture, if we understand it right, might apply. And thus, there's a lot of trepidation among pastors, even among commentators. I was reading, when I was preparing for this, some commentaries on this passage, and the commentators would often say, now I hesitate to comment on the next passage. (laughs) To which I was thinking, well... Think about how I feel having to preach it. Or you just have to comment on it. They don't want to wade into the subject. You can see that people are nervous. But we're going to wade in. But we need to do it with appropriate humility and frankly with fear and trembling. Because it's a vital topic and Jesus addresses it. The writers of scripture address it. But also because the main point The big picture of what Jesus is saying here is clear enough. It's perhaps too clear for modern ears. So the main text is the text from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. This is the third time Jesus has done this antithesis thing in the the sermon where he says, You have heard it said, but I say to you. But we should take note of the order of the text because our Lord is a master teacher and he's put these things in this beautiful order. The last sermon we had looked at lust as the root, the very essence of adultery. Anyone who looks on a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so there's a natural progression here in the next passage. It's as if Jesus is saying, not only lust, But divorce as well is equivalent to adultery. He's linking them. Both lust and divorce are forms of betrayal. They are violations of the seventh commandment. And they both partake of the essence or they lead to adultery. So with that, we're going to make three points. They're there on your outline. Moses. And we'll use the Old Testament text for that. The Pharisees. We'll use the Matthew 19 text for that. And then Jesus from the sermon. Moses, the Pharisees, and Jesus. So we have to do some background work here on what was going on in Jesus' culture and, and what, what, what he was thinking and being confronted with in the religious establishment of his days and where they were drawing these things from. So first, Moses. And here we're going to look briefly at the Old Testament lesson from Deuteronomy 24. And the text says this. 
It says, if a man finds what is somewhat ambiguously called something indecent about his wife and writes her a certificate of divorce, and she leaves and becomes the wife of another man, and the second husband dies or divorces her, so, so we're already in somewhat complex territory. <laughs> if that happens, the first husband cannot remarry her. That's what the text teaches. Right? You can see it plainly in the ifs and thens. Then the first husband cannot remarry her. By the way, notice, that's the only command in the text. He cannot remarry her. There's no encouragement to divorce in the text. There's only a kind of like reluctant acknowledgement that it sadly will happen. And if things fall out this way, then remarriage of the former spouse is forbidden. The law, then, the passage from Deuteronomy, is actually trying to deter the man from any kind of rash decision. And in fact, it's seeking to protect the wife who would be quite vulnerable in this society if she were divorced. But as our confession of faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith, which you can find in the back of your Trinity hymnals, chapter 24 on marriage. So if at the end of the sermon today, you're completely confused, you can go to chapter 24 of the Westminster Confession of Faith and you can find what the Reformed churches teach on marriage. It's right there in a few short paragraphs. But in that chapter, it says that the corruption of man is such that it is apt to study, that is, it is apt to create arguments to unduly put asunder those whom God has joined in marriage. That is, it is human nature to find and to look for reasons to end marriages. Here, we are very inventive. And that is what has happened among the rabbis of Jesus' time with this passage in Deuteronomy 24. Notice how this text begins in Deuteronomy 24. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent in her, this became the focus. How broad can we make the displeasing things which will allow the husband to issue a certificate of divorce? And by Jesus' day, Centuries after Moses, right? By Jesus' day, there were two rabbinical schools. And the two rabbinical schools had different approaches to the issue. There was the school of Shammai, which took a narrow reading of the Deuteronomy text. Basically restricted the reasons for divorce to adultery. And then there was another rabbi, Hillel. And the school of Hillel took a, a broad reading of something indecent or displeasing. And they allowed for divorce for virtually any reason at all. And it appears that that position was the dominant one soon at or after Jesus' time. So here, here, just to cite a few examples, here are the reasons a man could divorce his wife according to the Mishnah, which is a, a written collection of oral Jewish law from around 200-ish A.D., if she were barren, if she had epilepsy, if her husband considered her lazy, if she had certain defects, physical defects, if she burned his supper, 
or if he simply found someone he thought were prettier. And on and on and on it goes with this long list. And thus, a text in the Torah, Deuteronomy 24, meant to restrain the man and protect the woman, a text which reluctantly acknowledges, but in no way encourages divorce, a text which has one command in it, right, forbidding remarriage, if the spouses had an intervening marriage. That text was turned into the breeding ground for dozens of reasons to dissolve the original marriage. That is Moses, or what we might better call the the misogynistic mangling of Moses. So that's the context, the, the deep background. The second point then is the Pharisees, and here we move closer to Jesus. And we're going to look at the Matthew 19 portion of the gospel lesson. This Matthew 19 text is very helpful because Jesus is very brief in the Sermon on the Mount. And we have a little more context in Matthew 19. So some Pharisees come to test Jesus. They come to test him because they know this is complex. This is a disputed area. Different rabbis agree. I wonder what this rabbi from Nazareth says. And they ask. Listen to the way they phrase the question. It gives away the whole game. Right? Phrasing questions is a real art in theology. Ask the right questions, you'll get good answers. Ask bad questions, you get bad answers. Here's their question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? <laughs> That's the permissive position on Deuteronomy 24. That is the school of Hillel. And that seems to be the Pharisees' own position. Now we know this, right? The famous Jewish historian Josephus You've all heard of Josephus, or many of you have. He wrote a book called The Wars of the Jews and a book called Antiquities. He's got the best description of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD that we have. Right, that, that historian, Josephus, was a divorced Pharisee. And Josephus held, as a Pharisee, that divorce was valid for virtually any reason whatsoever. So this is their concern. Just how broad is the permission to divorce? It's the wrong question. And Jesus, as is his custom, directs them to like the deeper fundamental issues involved. They want to know about the grounds of divorce. Jesus says, hey, why don't we stop and go back to the beginning? He wants to talk about the good and the glorious institution of marriage established at the creation. They're worried about this ambiguous phrase in Deuteronomy 24. He quotes from Genesis 1 and 2 where everything starts. If we can get Genesis 1 and 2 right, we can get a lot of other things right. Haven't you read, Jesus replies, that at the beginning, the Creator made the male and female? And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? That's Genesis, right? And then Jesus gives his own authoritative pronouncement on Genesis. They are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore... Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. They're already not getting the answer they want. Marriage, Jesus says, is between one man and one woman. And the very complementarity of maleness and femaleness, right, even in their embodiment, creates one new flesh, one new person. And thus marriage is exclusive and permanent and holy and indissoluble. It's a divine gift. 
It's an ordinance rooted in the very creation itself. And notice what else Jesus says here. It is God who joins men and women. And no one, no one should separate them. Now that's a mouthful that Jesus has given them. It's often said, you know, that Jesus doesn't address questions like homosexuality or gay marriage, or for that matter, things like polygamy or bestiality. But he addresses them all right here. This is the divine pattern. This pattern forbids any deviation from this pattern for human covenant sexual relationships. So it's because of this divine creation ordinance that the prophet Malachi says God hates divorce. God hates divorce because he loves human flourishing. So the Pharisees started with Deuteronomy 24. Jesus takes them back to Genesis. But, but they're undeterred. Right? They go back to Deuteronomy 24 and they say, why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Right, you got this Genesis 1 thing, Jesus, we get that. Well, we might get that. We assume they understood him. And they say, but nevertheless, we have this Deuteronomy 24 passage. Notice, they say there's a command. Why did Moses command his wife? There's no command in Deuteronomy 24. Right? There's no such command. In any event, they think the divorce is unquestionably legitimate. And Jesus sees it as a concession. Listen to what he says. Moses permitted. There it is. It's a reluctant permission. It's not grounds for devising dozens of self-serving reasons to divorce your wife. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. What a shock this must have been to the Pharisees. They're just reading the Torah, asking an innocent Torah question from their point of view. I mean, they're trying to test him, of course. But you're saying that Moses allows this, that the Torah allows this, and the reason is because we're sinful? So first he reminds them of the extraordinary dignity in the vocation of marriage. And then he takes their central passage, the heart of all the rabbinical debates, and he says, you know what that is? The whole passage is a concession because you are evil. Right? The actual word for a hardened heart here means a sclerosis of the heart. Again, as it always is with Jesus and these guys, right? these, these religious leaders, it is the lovers of the law who understand the law the least. And just as an aside, there's another thing Jesus is teaching them here, which may have been a shock to them. And it's, it goes something like this. Some things are in the Torah, not because God is approving of the situation. Right? Divorce is permitted. It's permitted in Deuteronomy 24. God does not approve of it. Because it was not that way in the beginning. Some things are in the Torah not because God is approving of the situation, but because of the historical state of the people. Right? Because of their hardness. God will often regulate an evil with the law when the people are not ready or the time is not right for the evil to be abolished. Any good lawmaker does the same thing. Right? In fact, Paul says in Galatians that the whole Mosaic covenant was a temporary tutor. That kept Israel in a kind of slavery until Christ came. 
So now, whether the Pharisees grasp this or not, I don't know. But it's an important point Jesus is making. So he says, Moses permitted this because your hearts were hard. But, here's the big but, he says, right? It was not this way from the beginning. The Torah is assuming a fallen, broken condition and trying to regulate it. The ideal, Jesus says, is this order established at creation. And so the Lord Jesus Christ, who comes to restore all things, is calling them and he's calling us back to the splendor of marriage before the fall, before human sin intervenes. Because our hearts were hard. Our hearts were hardened. And therefore the law had to accommodate the tragic reality of divorce. That's the Pharisees and Jesus' response to them. So the third thing to see here is Jesus' own summary of the matter. And that's in Matthew 5 in those just two verses that we read there. And he starts, interestingly enough, now I hope this makes a little more sense. In Matthew 5, he starts by citing Deuteronomy 24. That's what he does there in the Sermon on the Mount. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. By the way, Mark's gospel, it speaks of the woman divorcing her husband. So these texts work both ways. In any event, he has now cited the Pharisees' favorite text. And then with this audacious, but I say to you, he gives his ruling. Because that's what he's doing. I tell you this. Anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual morality, makes her the victim of adultery. Now, I'd like to say that this ends matters and makes them very clear. Uh, but, but in fact, there's a long history about the boundaries of what sexual immorality means in the text. Because Jesus, it turns out, does not use the word for adultery here. He uses a broader word, pornea. The word we use, get pornography from. It's a broader word. That's why your Bible translates it sexual morality. Now, I'm not going to wade into this, but I want to make, I think, a clarifying point, I hope. Jesus is restricting reasons to divorce. He's not creating a new kind of loophole, much like what was done by the Pharisees. And that's why, in general, the Reformed tradition, and again, you can find this in chapter 24 of the Confession. The Reformed tradition takes this text to mean adultery alone is grounds for divorce. Now, there's an addition of desertion from one of Paul's letters, but we're going to leave that aside for now. So what position does Jesus take? Well, on the face of it, he takes the position of the Shammai school, the Shammai rabbinical school, the strict position among the rabbis. But he's even stricter, since it appears that Jewish law required divorce for adultery. Jesus simply permits it. You see, for, now why would he do that? Jesus does not require divorce in any circumstances. It's important to get that. He doesn't require it anywhere. Because for him and for us in light of the gospel, the way of reconciliation and the way of forgiveness and the way of healing and restoration is always the nobler way to proceed. It's not always possible. That's why the exception is there. But it is always the goal. So we can summarize. There's one concession here that he makes because adultery breaks the one flesh bond of the covenant. And notice then, 
Notice, if a man divorces his wife unlawfully for any other reason, Jesus says, he makes her, that's the language, he makes her the victim of adultery. Right? The assumption here is that in this culture, she's going to have to remarry to survive. And that means her new marriage is adulterous. And Jesus places the blame for this on the man. Right? He doesn't say she commits adultery. He says, if you divorce her for an unlawful reason, you make her commit adultery. So, this is very hard teaching. It cuts across the grain, I think, of a culture of no-fault divorce, of a culture with easy and pervasive second and third marriages, and of a culture which has lost the very grammar, right, the very logic of marriage itself, because we can't go back to Genesis 1 and 2 clearly and figure out what's being taught there and, and what it means for us. Right? We have a culture which would very much like to follow the school of Hillel and Josephus and embrace almost any reason as sufficient for divorce, as long as the parties consent. But if you look at the bloody cross of Jesus, right, who came to, to establish a gospel of reconciliation, right, then we must say there are very few irreconcilable differences if that's the price God has paid to reconcile us to himself and to one another. So it turns out, believe it or not, from his ancient vantage point, that Jesus knew a bit about the kind of permissiveness that we see in our day. In fact, in some ways you could argue some of these people are, some of these rabbis are more permissive than anybody you'll meet today in the modern world. And as I mentioned last week, the disciples response to all this in Matthew 19 is, if such is the case, isn't it better not to marry? And as I said, Jesus ups the ante at this point and says basically, well, if you can become a eunuch, go ahead and become a eunuch. In other words, Jesus, he's not slighting marriage when he says that. He's agreeing with them that marriage is the way of the cross. That marriage, for all of its glory and joy, is difficult and is hard. So he says, yeah, yeah, it might be better not to marry. It might be better for you to choose singleness or even become a eunuch for the kingdom of God. That's how, how high he views the dignity and the vocation of marriage. He does not want us to enter into it lightly. So what has Jesus done here? He's disturbed. He does what he always does. He disturbs their complacency. He's resting this very strict position that he has, not on strictness itself, but on the theology of marriage in the book of Genesis. In one sense, a whole bunch of questions are just settled by Genesis 1 and 2. And we heard in the New Testament lesson, right, that the Apostle Paul would add in Ephesians 5, where he's relying on Genesis as well. He adds that marriage is to image Christ's relationship to the church. Right? Actually, it is Christ and the church which is primary, and marriage is secondary. It's not the reverse. The primary marital relationship is now that Christ has come, is the relationship between Christ and the church. Marriage is to image that. And that brings me to the role of this teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Why is this here? That's always a pretty good question to ask, I think, of a text. Why is this here, not somewhere else? What is it doing? 
in the flow of the argument. So Jesus is in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, right? He's finished up the Beatitudes. He's going into some teaching about the law. He's addressing you. He's addressing us, disciples, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. People who belong to the age to come. And thus he calls us back to the design of marriage. The design of marriage. He calls us back to Genesis 1 and 2 as a pointer forward to Christ and the church. And even further forward to the coming wedding in the new heavens and the new earth. So he's saying something like this to us. Divorce destroys the image of God's love. The image of God's covenant fidelity with his bride. It ruins the sign of the kingdom. It, It effaces the sign of the kingdom of heaven. And thus Jesus says it is almost always sinful and should be a rare, rare exception. And we have to be clear as a people that we reset our thinking and expectations to this standard. Now, I want to leave you with a word of hope, I hope. Um, If we have fallen here, if we are defiled, if we have failed, and regardless of whether a marriage ends in divorce or not, they are all full of brokenness, sin, and failure. We must remember this, right? It's a big picture biblical story thing. Yahweh is Israel's husband, right? And Christ is the bridegroom of the church, your bridegroom. And they are, through the Spirit, in the business of wooing and pursuing and winning back and forgiving often wayward, adulterous, faithless brides, namely you and I. In one sense, the whole biblical story is God marries an adulterous bride. How long is she adulterous for? A couple thousand years. What does he do? He comes in person to win her back. So this this overarching mercy and kindness and love of God should be poured out on you and your marriage and your relationships. It should not be lost in the technical details of Deuteronomy 24, though those are important. Right? It is gospel mercy manifested in Christ, who's the embodiment of the Beatitudes. It's what he did for his bride that enables this affirmation, this embrace, this living out of marriage according to the pattern established at the beginning. So in other words, Jesus thinks this is important to place in the teaching here because he's saying, look, it is the spirit wrought virtues of the Beatitudes which are necessary to sustain a marriage. It's the spirit wrought virtues of the Beatitudes. The great 5th century bishop, John Chrysostom, understood this. He put it this way. He's commenting right on this text, Matthew 5 text. He says this, For he that is meek and a peacemaker and poor in spirit, and merciful, how shall he cast out his wife? He that is called to reconcile others, how shall he be at variance with his own? Notice what Chrysostom has done here. He has connected this text with the virtues in the Beatitude and with the gospel of reconciliation. And that's what we must do. He who is called to reconcile others, he who has embraced the gospel of reconciliation, 
How shall he be at variance with his own? How indeed? We are called to the life of the Beatitudes, right? That's why this text is here. Here the married are addressed directly. Go forth by the gospel of grace from here. Form, create, repair that most difficult and glorious of human relationships. The Beatitudes shape marriage. Amen. Amen.